0: not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they lay down at the bed on which the paralytic lay, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic. Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: All right, if you brought a Bible with you or you've got it on your phone, open to Mark chapter 2, where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we're going through the Bible this year from uh, Genesis to Revelation, from January to December, and we're now in the New Testament. Last week when we were at Grace on the Beach, we covered the book of Matthew. Today we're going to be in the book of Mark. If you've been coming along with us through this journey, and maybe you've taken a break from uh, reading the Bible on your own during the week, maybe you got behind a little bit in the Old Testament, kind of got discouraged, man, I would love for you to jump in with us as we go through the New Testament over these three months, and uh, maybe just sort of reset. You know, this week we're starting at Luke chapter 1, and if you read through the whole, from Luke all the way through Revelation over the rest of the year, that would be such a blessing in your life, and I, I hope such an encouragement for you and such an accomplishment. So if you've maybe taken a break from the sheet that's in your bulletin that says what to read this week, this would be a great week to jump back in with that. I hope you'll do that. All right, what's the best thing someone could say to you this week? What's the best thing you could say to, someone could say to you this week? For me, I think it's, uh, the baby is here. The baby's healthy and mom's healthy. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know, my, my wife's expecting our third child this Friday, um, which means it could be any day, which means Krista has my phone and the ringer's on, and if she runs in and grabs me, uh, you guys can figure it out from here. <laughs> By the way, some some—I uh, I some guys have asked me, hey, has the baby already come? And I thought, man, if the baby had already come and I'm here today, half the people in this church would hit me upside the head and tell me to go home. <laughs> so that's what I would wish someone would say to me, that mom and baby are here and healthy. What about you? What's the best thing someone could say to you this week? Is it someone saying, I'm coming home. The cancer is gone. You're beautiful. I am proud of you. The Dodgers won the 2020 World Series. (laughs) And Clayton Kershaw pitched well for a change. (laughs) What's the best thing someone could say to you this week? You know, that question really brings out our longings and our desires. It tells us something significant about our soul and what we really, really want and what we think we really, really need. Today's passage in Mark 2 is going to address this core question. What happens when we find out that the thing we think we want most is really not what we need the most. Because someone's going to come to Jesus, his friends are going to bring him to Jesus with one expectation of what he needs the most. And Jesus is going to say, no, what you really need the most is the forgiveness of your sins. We meet a man who's paralyzed. We assume, everyone around the scene assumes that what he needs the most is to be able to walk. And Jesus says, what you need the most is the forgiveness of your sins. In this process, Jesus is going to challenge all of us, not just this man on the map, but, but all of us who bring to him these pressing needs and wants in our soul. They answer that first question asked, what is the best thing someone could say to you? And we say, Jesus, this is what I really need. And in this passage, he replies, no, what you really need is the forgiveness of your sins. So let's get into it in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. It says that Jesus returned home to Capernaum, Capernaum was a town in Galilee, and it's where Jesus seems to have made his home, probably with Peter and Andrew for a significant part of time before he began his public ministry. And you can actually still visit Capernaum today if you go on a tour of Israel. And they've even found the house that was Peter and Andrew's house where this miracle occurred. So if you take a tour to the Holy Land, you can go and visit that spot. Tell me what it's like and take a picture and show some slides on a Friday night or something. All right, they returned to Capernaum after some days— And it was reported that he was at home. I'm sorry, sweetie, it's going to be a lot longer. (laughs) It's going to be a lot, a lot longer. And many were gathered together, this is verse 2, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So Mark sets up this scene where Jesus' reputation has gone before him, That The miracles that we read about in Mark chapter 1 have caused word of mouth to spread throughout the region. And people who are desperate, understandably medically desperate, as well as desperate for the deliverer of Israel to come, are crushing in on Jesus. And so he goes home and people find him at home. He tries to uh, take a break and people crush in on him. And the biggest proponent that Mark wants us to see is this man whose friends carry him to see Jesus a man who's described only as paralyzed. Now, we want to resist the temptation to analyze him because we don't know anything about his emotional, psychological, any of those states. We don't even know the guy's name. All that Mark thinks that's important for us to know is that he's paralyzed and that he comes to Jesus with the help of his friends. But it's pretty easy for us to imagine if we were in those shoes, how desperate we'd be for Jesus to intervene. And not just us, but if it was a friend or someone we loved. And his friends carry him to Jesus. And in verse 4, it says, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, which again would not be a small opening, but a very large one, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. The man's friends play this really significant role in bringing him to Jesus, and it's an earnest and desperate role. It was not uncommon in homes at that time that roofs would have a flat roof would would be flat so that people could sit up there in a patio, uh, use it as a patio. There maybe would be a ladder to get up there. Uh, But it was pretty uncommon that you would just rip someone else's roof apart. That was not polite. But these friends are desperate. And so they go to the point of even destroying Peter and Andrew's property, the home that's described as Jesus' home, out of a desperate attempt to bring their friend to Jesus. I hope you read that, and I read that, and there's a question of, how desperate would we be to get to Jesus? How desperate would we be to get our friends to Jesus? These four friends display remarkable earnestness. You know, I think the normal thing for us to say is, well, we tried. You know, I, I tried to bring you to Jesus, but, you know, there was no room, so we left. Uh, I, I tried. You know, I invited them to Christmas Eve service. They said they didn't want to come. and didn't want to be pushy, right? But to rip the roof off of his home, I mean, this is like the theme verse of a good youth ministry, right? We are going to destroy things to bring people to Jesus. Um, <laughs> And I hope this is your desperation and my desperation, that we are so eager to introduce our friends to our Savior. Not that we're going to force faith on them, but that we're going to do anything in our power to remove barriers between them and God. That's part of why we're asking you to take this worship service survey this morning, is what could we do to remove barriers so that people can come in to where Jesus can be learned about. Even to the point of maybe social awkwardness, right, to to take the roof off. Now, please don't apply this literally. We just put a new roof on with Wave 3. Please don't <laughs> rip it off. But figuratively, I hope that you and I have that same sort of courage. And I, I see that in some of you, right? We've been doing on Monday nights this Christianity Explored course. We had the first week last week, and a lot of you have brought friends and family and neighbors to that. You've been, a, like these friends who bring their friend to Jesus, you've been a, a bridge and a link yourself. There's still time to jump in on that, by the way, if you'd like to do that. And I hope that you're thinking of it from the other side as well. Is someone trying to get in right now? That'd be ironic. All right. <laughs> um, all right. Let's see. I, and, and I hope that you, you and I look at this from the other angle too. Not just would we bring our friends there, but if we see ourselves in the paralytic, do we have friends like this? Uh, do we have friends that care so much about us that they would desperately want to bring us to God? Now, if you're a Christian, maybe that's not the sort of first application that comes to mind, but but I hope that you have friends in your life group that are so earnest and so share faith with you that they are willing to go to great lengths to care for you and help bring you to God. And if you're in a, a lot of hurt right now and you don't have friends like that, I think a Stephen minister could be a really helpful thing for you to help carry you to Jesus as well. Well, Jesus responds to the expression of their reckless and destructive faith, not with anger, but with delight. And in verse 5, he says, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When he saw their faith, when he looked at all five of them together, and he saw the earnestness of the friends and the faith that apparently is in this man's heart, and he says, Your son, your sins are forgiven. Now we read this, and it seems like a record scratch stop, because we say, like, that's not his real problem, right? His real problem is that he's paralyzed. And Jesus says, no, this is his real problem. The greatest need in his life and in my life and in your life is the forgiveness of our sins. The greatest need more than being getting a call saying the cancer is gone is that your sins are forgiven. The greatest need more than someone telling you that they're proud of you or that they think you're beautiful is that your sins are forgiven. The greatest need in your life and my life is that our sins are forgiven. And I get that that's a heavy claim. And that would be a heavy claim to make to a man who's paralyzed. It's a heavy claim to make to so many of us that are carrying heavy loads in here today. So I don't say it lightly. But you know, the reality is that a thousand years from now, it's not really going to matter whether someone thought you were beautiful. It's not going to matter whether cancer took you at 25 or at 85. The only thing that's going to matter a thousand years from now is whether you've been forgiven by a holy God, whether your sins have been sent away and driven away, And Jesus sees that this is the deepest need of his soul. I think that's why he calls him son in this passage. Because like a good father who gives his children what they need, not just what they want, he says this may be what you want right now, that your legs are healed, but what you need is that your sins are forgiven. And he loves him like a son and declares that. Not because, let me just be clear about this, it's not because his sins somehow had caused him to be paralyzed. We have no record in the passage of, of what the medical reason for his paralysis was, but because like you and like I and like every person who ever lived, this man was a normal person and his sins had separated him from a holy God. And so the deepest need for him and for us was that his sins would be forgiven. Now I get if you object to this point and you say like, Bob, that's just not how needs work, right? Forgiveness, spiritual fulfillment, didn't Maslow say that's like way down the line of the hierarchy of needs? Like, what I really need is water and food and shelter. What I really need is a sense of like, fulfillment in my life. Forgiveness of sins, that's not really that important. And I, and I get that, right? That's a very 21st century American objection. And we'll come back to that in a little bit in the passage. But what I find so interesting is that that's not the objection of Jesus' first listeners. The objection of Jesus' first listeners is, who do you think that you are? How could you possibly presume to forgive sins? Notice how angry they are in verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, what do you think? Do they have a good point or a bad point? I have a really good point. And we miss this as Americans, right? Because we live in a generation that encourages us to forgive ourselves and to forgive To to realize that everything about us is always okay. We live in sort of an Oprah generation, um, and I use that generation sort of broadly of boomers to millennials and and everybody, that, that we live in a day and age where the idea that we're forgiven is so presumed that there's very little holiness or sacredness to it. But this is one of the values of having gone through the whole Old Testament together, right? You've been looking over the last number of months at how holy an act of forgiveness is. Think about all the sacrificial system that God puts in place to deal with the severity of sin. Think of how uh, terrible the consequences for sin are. The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the exile of people to Babylon. Think about how God had to set up an entire group, the Levitical the priests, just to carry out the sacrifices and how holy those sacrifices had to be. The scribes have a point. Only God alone can declare forgiveness. Forgiveness is not an act that I can just, as a normal person, declare on behalf of another. That is God's territory alone to declare. Now, the problem, of course, is that it never enters the scribes' minds at this point that there should be an act, or that that Jesus, in a meaningful way, is speaking on behalf of God. There really should be an awful stigma around anyone flippantly saying, you're forgiven, right? Right? That's God's act to do. And Jesus says, exactly. And that's who I am. I am the son of God. I am the one who is able to do what God does, to declare forgiveness. I'm able to decree what God decrees. I'm able to assume the judgment seat of God because I alone represent him in this world. And the other question that sort of is begged by the response of the the scribes is, okay, even if you were that person, what have you done to accomplish that? And that's why this passage really sets up the whole Gospel of Mark, because it says, "What is Jesus going to do that will cause him to be able to forgive sins?" It points, uh, it points all the reader and the listener and us to the cross. How is he going to be able to declare that his sins are forgiven? Only through his own death and resurrection. So, in their minds, the scribes think, "Who does this guy think he is?" And Jesus responds, always a good way to respond. By knowing their mind, by reading their thoughts. In verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? That's a good question. It's actually a really insightful question that commentators have struggled with for a long time. Which one is easier to say? Is it easier to decree to someone your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, on the surface, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because no one can tell. It's unverifiable. Like, you could do that, I could do that, and no one would really know. But to tell someone they're take up their bed and walk, I mean, you really got to have the proof is in the pudding on that one, right? You can really look like a fool if you try that and it doesn't work. So in one sense, that seems easier. But why I think this is such a brilliant question and such an insightful question for all of us is because how hard is it to forgive sins, right? It requires the cross, right? There's a lot of people that maybe could come and heal someone, or modern medicine that could come and heal someone, but there's only one person who can actually carry out the cost of forgiveness. Not just token forgiveness, not just ceremonial forgiveness, but real deep forgiveness is gonna require something enormously costly from Jesus, He can heal, and no one gets mad at him. He can heal, and it doesn't cost him anything. But for him to forgive this man's sins, and your sins, and my sins, to give us what we truly need is going to cost him his very life. Uh, As Tim Keller says, Jesus knows the only way to make this man's legs mobile is if his own legs are nailed immobily to the cross. The only way for this man to dance again is for Jesus to die it's going to be so much harder for him to affect the forgiveness of sins for this paralytic man and for you and for me than it ever would be just to heal him. And Jesus gives him the thing he deeply needs and the thing that costs him everything. And then Jesus says, so that you know that I'm not just making this up, so that you have confidence that this is true, so that you can believe that what I'm saying really is going to come to pass, that this forgiveness is not just ephemeral, spoken into the mist, but actually changes your destiny forever with God? This is what he says in verse verse 10. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus heals the man who is paralyzed as a demonstration of his authority to forgive sins. He wants the people there to see that what he's said, what he's decreed over the man, really matters. That's why he does it. But he also does it because he cares about this man. You know, that neither he, neither his paralysis nor any of the medical challenges that we're carrying with us this morning are what God intended for him. Right? We were made to live with God, but sin and death has wrecked a cost on our bodies and on this world. And Jesus says, I want to preview what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. As you and I bring our longings to God, this idea that someone would declare that we're healthy and that we're okay, that's a pointer for us. There should be a pointer for us of of what will come in the kingdom of heaven. When we bring to God this yearning and this longing of like, I wish someone would think I'm beautiful. I wish someone would say they're proud of me. I wish someone would say that I'm okay. What we're really saying is, God, do we are we the way that you are we made the way you intend us to be? And those longings are a preview of what's to come in the kingdom of heaven, when the God of eternity will say that we are His beloved sons and daughters. This is how we apply this to our lives. Not that we suppress these longings or we repress them or say that, you know, I'm forgiven, so these things don't really matter. But that we bring these longings to the surface and say, God, you know my heart. You, you know these are the things that I really cherish and that I really want. And I bring them to you, not because they're the ultimate thing, but because they point me to you. These longings, these deep longings point me to the idea that I have what is needed most through forgiveness in Christ. But God, what I feel the most in this moment is I really wish that you would heal me or you'd heal this person I love. I really wish that things would work out well for me. God, I'm not asking you to always do those things, but I am asking you to show me that what I have in you the forgiveness i have in christ is what ultimately matters most in this life. So how about you? If you were given the option between having your sins forgiven or your body healed by Jesus, which would you choose and why? Now, it's not a, I know that's a false dichotomy, right? Ultimately the man who's paralyzed gets both, right? It's a it's a happy ending story. But if you were given the choice of one or the other, which would you choose and why? Now, I know there's a right answer to that, right? Like I just gave a sermon on the right answer. So <laughs> So this is not a test, right? This is just more a question of the heart. Like, I'd encourage you to spend some time sitting with God in prayer and asking the Spirit, Spirit, would you show me the reality of this? Like, do I really cherish the fact that I'm forgiven in Christ? Or do I see that as a superfluous, unnecessary act? Do I really cherish the idea that you have declared me your son or daughter? Or are the things of this world just crowding out that in my soul? Now, I know that the right answer, you might say, this, God, I know the right answer is I, I want to cherish your forgiveness. Would you help my soul to be like that? Would you help my soul to reflect the reality of you and the reality of eternity? And, you know, if that's not where you are right now with God, I'd encourage you just to be honest with God about that. Say, God, God that's what I want. That's the direction I want to go. Would you help me grow in that together? So I hope that you see in this passage, I hope you see in the story, an example and a model for how Jesus interacts with us that he gives us what we truly need, the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. And as we bring our friends to him, we, we can't control how they'll respond, but we can bring people to him so that we can see them come to faith in Christ. Let's close our time in prayer. Jesus, we're thankful for this example. We're thankful for Mark's gospel. And most importantly, we're thankful for the forgiveness of our sins. God, we see in this man who has paralyzed us, all of us, all of our story. That we came to you maybe for reasons of selfishness or maybe reasons of longing or desire and we found something far better than what we could ever ask for. God, would you impress upon our souls the goodness of your gift in Jesus Christ. Amen.